So we're looking at Psalm 73, verses 1 to 20 this evening. The big idea of my sermon this evening is that life doesn't always make sense, but when we stop and take refuge in God, we receive the strength we need to face reality. Life doesn't always make sense, but when we stop and take refuge in God, we receive the strength we need to face reality. When I walk around Harrogate, which I did recently, I notice the affluence in Harrogate uh, by looking at the cars. Um, I've always been into cars. Um, My dad used to take my brother and I motor racing when we were young. He enjoyed watching uh, bikes because he used to race motorcycles himself. And um, Richard and I have therefore always been into our cars. And we like fast cars. And in the, in the 70s and 80s, when I was a young kid growing up, I remember that you would see sort of one Rolls Royce maybe in a month. Or if you're very lucky, you might see a Ferrari in your lifetime. But when you walk around places like Harrogate, they are lined up um, all along the street and Cars that cost 100,000 to 150,000 pounds are more common than fiestas in many places in Harrogate. And it just makes you wonder where does the wealth come from? And I'm not the only one who thinks this because I remember walking along the street with Jane and a young couple came the other way. And as they went past, I remember the young chap saying, looking at one of these cars and saying, Where do they get all this money? And it doesn't really make sense when you work all your hard all your life, and yet there's just this huge wealth on on display in affluent areas like Harrogate. Now, that wasn't exactly Asaph's problem in this psalm. But he did look at the affluence and the wealth and the prosperity of the wicked, of those that didn't acknowledge God, and he, didn't, he couldn't make sense of it, why God allowed it. And he couldn't make sense of his own life, where things weren't going so well, because he'd always tried to be godly. And he didn't. He came to, almost came to the conclusion that there wasn't any point in being godly. So Asaph, in a, in a similar sort of way to me was confronted by such wealth, particularly among those who didn't care at all for God and were described as wicked and didn't understand why God allowed them to prosper. So my first point is there doesn't seem much point in being godly. There doesn't seem much point in being godly. And we're looking at verses 1 to 14. Psalm 73 begins with a theme that was well known in Israel and commonly... It was like a creed and commonly believed to be how the world worked. Verse 1 says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. God is goodly, good, to the good to the godly. And we've seen that before in the Psalms. It reflects an almost creedal statement in the first book of Psalms, um, which begins with Psalm 1. So the Psalms are split into five books. First book begins with Psalm 1, and verse 1 of Psalm 1 contains a common refrain or theme. 
It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. On his law, he mediates day and night. It was expected that God blesses the person who avoids the counsel of the wicked, who, does, who isn't influenced by godless people, and who builds his life on the truth of God. I, it was expected that God blesses the godly person. And this truth, that God is good to those who are godly, progresses when you come to book two of the Psalms, which begins with Psalm 42, where the writer observes in Psalm 42, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. So in, by Psalm 42, there's <clears throat> understanding that life doesn't always offer a straightforward relationship between personal virtue, godliness, the pure in heart, and blessing. The experience of the godly is actually not always comfortable. In fact, far from it, life for those who follow God can be difficult. Um, Psalm 42 also says, My adversaries taunt me and say, Where is your God? By the time you get to book three, which is where we are with Psalm 73, the question's even more blunt. Is there any point in being godly? Is, it, is godliness worthwhile or is it just a waste of time? In fact, the disillusionment for Asaph, who is the psalmist, is so severe that in verse, thir- sorry, verse 2 he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. From the context, we gather that he doesn't mean he had a little moment, you know, minor little um, hesitance in his faith. He'd nearly given up. Asaph had nearly walked away from his faith. Verse 13 says, Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. Asaph's striving to maintain a moral goodness internally, so he sought to keep his heart and his motives pure, but it seems to be in vain. And he's washed his hands in innocence, which means he'd strive to be uh, godly in his actions and in his speech, i.e. outwardly. But he said, surely it's in vain. He was, all, he was thinking it's all a waste of time being godly. So why? What was it that caused Asaph to think there's no point in being godly? Well, let's have a look. The verses 3 to 9, it continues. I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Verse, so verse 3 is saying they were prosperous. The wicked, those that disregard God, those that care nothing for God, they were prosperous. They were doing well, thank you very much. Verse 4 says they have no pangs in their death. They seem to live such painless lives. They're healthy and strong. Pangs in death, they have no terminal illness. They're healthy, vibrant, strong. Verse 5, they're not in trouble as other men or plagued like other men. They don't have troubles. They don't appear anyway on the surface to have problems. 
Everything seems to be hunky-dory with them. They wear pride as a necklace. They violently exploit others. You know, prosperity can be a great blessing. But using the phraseology from verse 18, which says, Surely you set them in slippery places. Prosperity is a slippery slope because people put their security in it and not in God. You know, there are godly people who are very wealthy, but generally, as the Bible teaches, for example, with a rich young ruler, wealth can so easily become a snare to people. They become blind to the spiritual reality of their wealth being a result of the providence of God. They think they did it themselves. And they put security in their own achievement. Their security is not in God. And it leads to pride and arrogance. You know, I remember when, a few years ago when I was um, working for the church. Um, we were very, things were quite difficult uh, financially. And um, we experienced the, the blessing of God um, with God's people looking after us in, in amazing ways. Um, and, but during that time, um, I just remember standing in the shower thinking, I don't know if I'm going to have warm water tomorrow because, you know, I can't afford to pay the bills. And when Jane went shopping, um, I didn't know how I would be able to afford to, to even eat. And... Um, you know, there are times where it's very difficult. But in, in that situation, God amazingly looked after us and blessed us through the provision of God's people. Um, so it's good for us. In the summer, I, think, I think that's good because it shows, it demonstrates to you your utter dependence on God. And as I, you know, sat in my house with the heating on, I realized... There's a direct relationship between the provision of God and me being nice and warm in my house. And, you know, people who are very wealthy, they don't really often have that connection because it's all given on a plate to them. They don't seem plagued by any problems. Um, and they certainly don't attribute that blessing to God. It's a slippery slope prosperity because people put their security in it and think they don't need God. Verse 6, and it leads, this therefore leads to pride. You know, they wear it as a necklace. It becomes part of them. They become arrogant. And as pride follows success, sometimes violence follows. Maybe just violence in their attitudes and their arrogance. And uh, people are cruel and uncaring towards those who have little. You know, when you've had little, then you're, more, you're naturally more compassionate towards others. And more aware about of it when they have little. But when you have a huge amount of wealth, then, especially for the ungodly, there seems to be very little care. Verse 7. He saw that their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than their heart could wish. It means they spare no self-indulgence. They spare themselves nothing, whether it be food or clothing, or any luxury. They spare themselves nothing. I remember Elton, watching a program about Elton John, the singer, going into a, a record store, 
and he walked around with a basket and just started piling CDs in. You know, I'll have three of these, one for this room, the same music, one for this room, one for that room, one for the other. Um, you know, you see in the newspapers, footballers sometimes get mugged because they're wearing £100,000 watches on their wrist. I mean, who would spend that? But they do. They spare themselves no self-indulgence. Um, they have... When the Arabs come over to London, uh, they ship their cars over from Dubai, and they have, they have like gold plating on their Lamborghinis. Um, I'm not making this up, Stephen will know this, but they electroplate their cars with gold and so on. Um, it seems very sort of biblical in its enormity of self-indulgence and wealth. They have to have everything that everybody else does. They're very competitive with one another. Their eyes bulge with abundance. Verses 8 to 9, they scoff and speak wickedly about oppression. They speak loftily and set their mouth against the heavens. The tongue in the Bible is always a yardstick of character. Luke 6 says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man, out of the evil treasure of his heart, brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Our tongues reveal what we are, our hearts. And in the the wicked that Asaph is looking at, he says they reveal their overindulged sense of self-worth. They set their mouth against the heavens. We call it a sense of entitlement in our culture now. The way people speak and just demand attention and demand respect because of who they are and what they're wearing and all their things and accoutrements. And along with this arrogance goes a disdain for God. They set their mouths against the heavens. They don't need God. They're better than that. Verse 10 to 11. What were the wicked like that he could make no sense of? Therefore his people return here and waters of a cup, full cup are drained by them. His people is referring to those who try and imitate the prosperous. And it can be, could even be those of God's people who imitate the prosperous. Um, none of us are immune to the effects of materialism. I know lots of Christians in Harrogate, they're just trying to keep up with other people. And they have flashed the flashiest cars and the um, best this and that and the other. Um, there are also other Christians who are very modest with what they have, which is great. Um, but Christians are not immune to it. To drain the cup means they fully indulge in this behavior. You know, the wicked, they're admired by others who sus- subscribe to their theology of rebellion against God. What does God know, they say? Is their knowledge in the Most High? And Asaph can't understand it because these people seem to prosper who set themselves against God. Verses 12 to 14, this summarized the observations of Asaph and his frustrations and despair. Verse 12, behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. You know, they're always at ease. They, have it, they seem to have it so good. They have not a care in the world. There's certainly no care for the things of God. Asaph can make no sense of the success of the wicked. He's frustrated to the point where he nearly gives up his faith. Verse 13 says, 
Surely I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in his innocence. What's the point of keeping a pure heart before God and of trying to do the right thing in every situation? What's the point? <coughs> Just to clarify, he's not questioning the character of God, the goodness and benevolence of God in general. He's questioning the word of God in, early, in the earlier Psalms as we've seen you know, the fact that God says, surely God is good to Israel, to the pure in heart. It's that conditional goodness of God he's questioning that where people trust and pray and rely on God and they keep a pure heart, they're not always blessed in life, it seems. And this is what he's questioning about God, not God's general character of goodness, but this conditional goodness of God. He can't understand and it doesn't seem to apply to those who reject God because they go from strength to strength. They're healthy and strong, got no problems. Their eyes bulge, as we've seen, in abundance. They've got everything they need. They're arrogant and violent. And they don't even say they don't need God in their lives. To make it worse, it appears that Asaph, who'd followed God, his own life seemed to be far from ideal. Verse 14 he observes that for all day long I've been plagued and chastened every morning. I, Asaph is suffering with, a, with something, an illness, or he's being persecuted, or his life's difficult. So all the time whilst the godless, godless sail through life, his own life is plagued. He's in, in pain every morning, and he doesn't understand it. He can make no sense of God allowing these wicked people to prosper it makes no sense of what God's doing in his own life. There just doesn't seem to be any point in being a godly person. Well, my second point is stop for the sake of others. Stop for the sake of others. We now come to verses 15 to 16. If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Asaph's really in a difficult place mentally. When I thought how to understand it, it was too painful for me. He's thinking about God and life. And his operational theology had taken a real battering. You know, there's the intellectual theology, what you read and understand. But there's your operational theology. How you actually live in this life. How you put things into practice. And that had taken a real battering. You know, often you find in life, Christians don't seem to have much of an operational authority, theology. And they, when you're going through hard times, this has happened to me. They say things like, oh, never mind, it'll be all right. And, uh, oh, you just need to trust God. Or, oh, just pray about it. You know, but these flippant uncaring comments are said without any thought to the situation or without any care because there's there's no operational theology in them people have no depth they know very little spiritual knowledge they know very little about how God works in practice and how to apply the word of God and this can be us you know God was testing God was giving Asaph's operational theology a real 
a real testing and a real shake-up. But he wasn't trite like that even with himself, oh, it'll be all right. He was gutted and he was trying to reconcile what he saw in the world with what he knew about God and was in, it was too painful for me. He could hardly um, reconcile it. He was confused and distressed in his thinking. But in spite of his inner turmoil, he has a sense of mind to say to himself, stop. If you look at verse 15, it says, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. He's a mature believer. He's a Levite and a priest who ministered before the ark of God. In fact, he was one of those listed in Chronicles who led the procession when King David brought the ark to Jerusalem. But, and if he'd expressed the fact that he was nearly ready to walk away from his faith, then others might well have been really knocked in their faith, especially those younger in the faith. But he stops himself he says, if I'd said I speak thus, I would have, in a different ESV says, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He's thinking of others and he knows he would have betrayed them whose faith may have been shattered by a leader not being able to handle a difficult situation. I think leaders are all human and leaders go through difficult times and other leaders, pastors included, need the counsel of other godly men. They need other people too. But there are times when you cannot share what you're going through because other people would find it too destructive, too undermining to their own faith, especially younger believers. And the devil, you know, he's like a prowling lion. Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The more we pursue integrity, the more the devil seeks to destroy us. You know, when you stick your head above the parapet, then you get shot at. Asaph was in this situation of confusion and despair, but he was mature enough to, to know that other people would be affected, the children of God, other believers, and he was, it affected how he reacted to the problem. He didn't betray the, the children of God, other believers. And the commentator says, our usefulness to Christ depends on how we handle situations like this. Our usefulness to Christ depends on how we handle this sort of thing. So he stopped and he didn't betray God's people by walking away from his faith. God kept his foot from slipping. You know, you, people sometimes struggle in their relationship with God and they, you know, they do walk away and God can bring people to repentance, back to repentance. But leaders need to be careful because when they step away from their faith, they take, often take others with them. People's own weak faith can be undermined. But, you know, we have a God who is faithful. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. That's Psalm 121. So mind how you react to crisis for the sake of others. And thirdly, seek refuge in God. Seek refuge in God, verses 17 to 20. 
When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. After Asaph stopped himself from dragging others down by walking away, he sought God. He did the best thing possible. He sought God in the sanctuary. And when he sought them, when he sought God, he saw the true end of the wicked, and they were indeed on a slippery slope. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they'll be brought to desolation as in a moment. They're utterly consumed with terrors. You know, the success of the godless is so fleeting. So fleeting. You know, our lives are like a breath of wind and so short. An eternity so long in comparison. Yes, as Christians we'll have struggles and difficulties but it's such a short period of time and over so quickly, an eternity so long. The perspective that he gains by coming to the presence of God is that they're on a slippery slope and they're about to get washed away in a moment. I'm interested in geography, so you know I look online at all sorts of geological things and even avalanches and uh, you know earthquakes and tornadoes i studied tornadoes in my um in my master's course in environmental science and um you see, there's lots of disasters that have happened around the world um abba found one in it um for instance in the 50s but also um you know brazilian uh, dam collapsing and there's a video of it online and just a huge pile of mud and mine tailings. This massive brown and black mud comes rushing down. And you see people fleeing before them, people in diggers trying to get out of the way, but they don't. They're just swept away. And in an instant, they're enveloped by it and destroyed. Life is so fleeting. And that is the end for the godless. They'll be consumed and brought to destruction. Psalm 145 says, The Lord keeps all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Psalm 37 says, The Lord loves justice and does not forsake his godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off. You know, the godless may prosper in this world. But as we draw near to God, we'll see the true reality, the spiritual reality, that it's only fleeting. And in the end, they'll just be swept away and cut off from God forever. Well, as we think about the practical applications, you know, coming to worship God, which is what um, Asaph did in the sanctuary, is not escaping your problems, like watching a movie. I remember going to watch a film in the cinema and you go in and it's like going into a different world and for two hours you escape from reality but worshipping God is not like that the film is like being in a dream world but going into the presence of God is like being in an environment when faced with God's truth in such a way that we'll be strengthened to face the realities of our problems Asaph went into the sanctuary to worship God and it was the sanctuary was the place where the presence of God dwelt. And helpfully, we can think of a picture of the ark. The ark contained three things. 
It contained the tablets of stone on which God had written his commandments. It contained the golden cup of manna from Israel's wandering in the desert, and Aaron's staff that budded miraculously. And the tablets of stone remind us of the promises of God, the truth of God. And the cup of manna reminds us of the provision of God, how God looked after the Israelites. Their clothes never wore out, and he gave them food each day in the form of manna. And the staff of Aaron that budded reminds us of the miraculous, life-giving power and presence of God. Now, although Asaph couldn't see the ark as he worshipped in the sanctuary, he'd have known it was there because it was behind the curtain in the holiest of holies, but he knew it was there and he knew what it symbolised. And that is exactly what we need in any crisis of faith. We don't need to escape from the reality. We need the strength of God. We need the promises of God um, to dwell in us deeply and to be reminded of the provision of God. You know, I've... Re- I've um, given a little testimony tonight of how God has provided for me. I have many more examples of that. God is a provider. And he is a miraculous, life-giving power. God, you know, God's presence uh, is in us. We have God's presence with us through the Holy Spirit to help and strength our comforter. And he empowers us when we are down and enables us to Um, live our lives faithfully he preserves us the in the we have the perseverance of the saints that that doctrine is god who preserves us we don't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps we throw ourselves on the mercy of god and then he preserves us he holds us it's like a little child falling off a cliff and the parent just grabbing the reins around the the toddler the child And that's God. God's restraining us and holding us and preserving us. And that's what Asaph saw as he went into the sanctuary. He couldn't make sense of things. But he was strengthened by the provision and the power and the presence of God and his promises. So if we're thinking there's just no point being godly or in a difficult relationship or situation... As as Asaph did, remember God's promises. He is our refuge and strength, our ever-present help in trouble. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. And that wonderful verse in Philippians 4, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Every need. God has promised in Hebrews 13 never to leave us nor forsake us. Which is based on Deuteronomy. Never to leave us nor forsake us. So in conclusion, life doesn't always make sense. But when we stop and take refuge in God, we receive the strength we need to face reality. Mind how you react for the sake of others. Even if you see no point um, to what god is doing you make no sense of it what we need to do then is come to worship in a place in in your home the place really being the presence of god in spirit and in truth so that your thinking is straightened out so we can face the world the reality of it amen